Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Welcome, everyone. Excited to this episode of the Founders Forward. Today, I'm joined by Don Brown. Uh, I actually met Don at a CEO offsite in Park City a couple of years ago, which he, which he call, now calls home. Don is a serial founder, four-time plus entrepreneur. I think what you just said, he is at least six companies he started. And we're going to dive into some of those today. He first uh, started a company that was acquired back in 1986, really dealing with dealership technology for quoting loans and financing. Started a company called Software Artistry in 1988, uh, which became the first company to ever, uh, first software company in Indiana to ever go public. Uh, later acquired uh, by IBM for, for $200 million dollars. Then started and served as the CEO of Interactive Intelligence, which went public in 99, uh, then later acquired back in, in 2016 for $1.4 billion. And now Don is the finder, founder of Life Omic, which we're really going to go deep in today. Kind of one of the, the themes of, of today is going to be fasting and how to, how to do a fast or, or the benefits of it. But first, before we jump in, Don, welcome to the Founders Forward. How did I do with the intro? Did I miss anything? Uh, that, that was uh, very flattering. Thank you very much. Yeah, awesome. So um, one of the things that I found pretty interesting, uh, just kind of doing some research, is uh, we both attended Indiana University, so uh, shout out to the Hoosiers. And uh, back in the 70s, you uh, were getting, I think about doing a degree, uh, and you had a, a bachelor's in physics, if I understand, and then decided to get into computer science out of the medical industry. So, um, you know, looking back, that was almost 50 years ago. I think today that's common, right? People are like, oh man, I would love to get into tech. But like 50 years ago, what did you see where you're like, oh man, I, I really want to be uh, spend my time in, in computer science? Well, I, I would like to claim some brilliant uh, insight into the future, but it was uh, a lot more uh, mundane than, than that. Uh, you know, for me, essentially, I was looking for a way to stay in Bloomington as long as I possibly could. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know, Bloomington is a, uh, a, a beautiful Big Ten campus, uh, lots of pretty girls. Uh, and uh, I was in no uh, mood to, uh, to leave. So, uh, yeah, I got an undergraduate degree in physics. Uh, my buddies were starting to get jobs. And I said, uh, dude, you guys are crazy. You know, this is the greatest gig uh, going. I was getting scholarships. I was being paid to do what I loved, uh, which was uh, really nice. So I, I just looked for a program that would keep me in school as long as possible. <laughs> I found a, a combined degree program through the School of Medicine that would do the trick. Uh, that would take four years to get the MD and generally about five years to get a PhD. Uh, so it was a good nine-year program. And all but two of those years, uh, I would be able to be in Bloomington, so uh, I signed up. Okay, and then what happened? And then you, and, th and that was part of the the computer science as well. Well, not exactly. So I, you know, I started off. Um, you have to pick what the graduate, you know, the non medical part is going to be, and so uh, kind of the traditional route for that program is biochemistry. So I was originally in a PhD program in biochemistry. I went through my first year of med school and would occasionally visit the biochem lab and just started to have more and more misgivings about working in a lab. I knew mm -hmm. nothing about being in a lab. It didn't look 
like a lot of fun to me. And I just began to doubt whether I wanted to spend my next five years, you know, in a biochemistry lab. And uh, finally, I decided I, I didn't. I told uh, my uh, PhD advisor, who was not very happy with, with me, uh, they had really counted on me to be kind of the mathematics expert uh, in the, the lab. Uh, but I got out the graduate catalog and just started flipping through and came upon computer science. I'd never had a course uh, and thought, wow, you know, that sounds kind of uh, interesting. So I'm going to switch. Um, and uh, I, I switched from a PhD just to a master's and spent three years uh, you know, first year just doing the undergraduate prerequisites for mm -hmm. computer science and then uh, two years getting my master's, then went back and finished finished the uh, MD work. Okay. And, and was it during this time when you created uh, the algorithm for your buddy to uh, help auto or uh, sorry, car dealers, you know, create financing quotes, um, you know, before it was done by hand, you know, using, using the software you guys wrote? Yeah, yeah. You know, I got my uh, master's in computer science and, you know, became pretty adept at uh, programming and um, then went back to finish up uh, med school because I had to go back and finish the last three years of med school uh, then. And, uh, I, you know, by then I was married, uh, you know, starting to need more money. And a buddy came to me and who had a string of car dealerships and asked if I could write a little program to compute finance payments. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know anything about, you know, business math or anything, but I'll go to the library and, you know, I'll, I'll figure something out. And so uh, he gave me a little Apple IIe computer and uh, I spent, you know, a couple of weeks just, uh, it was got awful slow. So I had to do a lot of optimization. <laughs> you know, my first attempt ran in about 30 seconds you know, to compute yeah. <laughs> a, a monthly payment. He, uh, I looked at him, you know, I showed him and looked at him and I could see he was kind of disappointed that it was uh, taking that long. And I said, I can speed it up. Uh, so, uh, so anyways, yeah, I ended up doing that. It worked and um, he, uh, you know, the, the typical feature creep, he kept uh, coming back and saying, well, could you do this? Could you do that? <laughs> and I said, sure. And eventually he said, you know, I think we could sell this to other uh, car dealers. And so we incorporated a little company and uh, uh, a third friend of ours from uh, undergrad uh, was the sales force and would drive all over the Midwest um, uh, taking our uh, software and demonstrating to car dealers and, and selling it. How did you price it back in the day? Do you remember? Oh, was it God. like a one-time uh, fee? I, I really don't. You know, yeah. especially at that point, I was the technical guy. Yeah. Uh, I knew nothing about the car industry or anything. So my uh, my first buddy was the domain expert, and he set the pricing. And uh, But, you know, little by little, we started to sell it. And so when um, I graduated from uh, medical school, uh, I had started to fill out residency applications but I decided, I'm going to give this a shot. You know, I'll, I'll work for this company and it'll probably crater in a year or two. And I'll go back and go back and I'll do a residency or, or some sort of postdoctoral program. Um, but uh, it ended up working out that that little company ultimately was acquired by uh, General Motors for a pittance for, I, I don't know, a million dollars or something. But it gave me enough money then to turn around and, and uh, start another one. Were you part of GM? Like, did they have the golden handcuffs on you? Were you there for a while or did you kind of just sell them the tech and, and no. get out of there? 
there was a six month uh, transition. So I had to uh, go up uh, at that time, uh, G- GM owned uh, EDS. And so EDS was the entity that uh, was charged with taking over the software. So I went up and to um, uh, Detroit and uh, spent some time, enough time to realize I never want to work at a big company. Yeah, <laughs> it uh, it really solidified my uh, my desire to be in uh, smaller enterprises. Yeah, and then and then software artistry from there. Um, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was an interesting story, right? I think I was uh, I was listening to another interview you did, and it sounds like uh, if you know if we talk about jobs to be done uh, with the first company, it was pretty clear, like, hey, we need to provide a yeah. monthly payment for for car dealers. Uh, yeah. And it sounds like it took you a while to kind of figure things out <laughs> with software artistry. And um, I think I read uh, maybe a post you wrote about uh, three million dollars in venture capital, uh, and they helped you shift from selling a tool to a solution. Is that? when you learned the importance of, I guess, storytelling and, and fundraising? And, and what was that journey like? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that company uh, was really formed out of uh, ignorant uh, arrogance on uh, my <laughs> part. You know, I, I had been part of uh, starting this first company. Uh, we had developed something very focused. We ended up selling it. And it just seemed like, wow, this stuff, this is easy. <laughs> You know, you yeah. write some software, people write you big checks, and I, I must just have the Midas touch. I must just be the most brilliant guy on the planet, and surely I can do it again. Uh, it was so easy the, the first time. Yeah. And uh, so I took, uh, uh, I, I think uh, after taxes, my proceeds uh, from the sale of the first company were about a half million bucks. That's quite and a bit, so, though. Like back in 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 like, what's that worth today? I mean, it's it's not <laughs> insignificant. Yeah, I don't know. It'd be you know a million or a couple million yeah. bucks today, maybe. Uh, so yeah, it's certainly felt like a lot of money at the time. In fact, I thought that you know it was going to be enough for me to retire the rest of my life if I yeah. wanted to, and surely to be able to fund a, a second company. Uh, but, uh, it's amazing how quickly money can go. And so uh, I started this second company with, uh, with the guy from, uh, Joe Adams, who, uh, was the sales guy from the first company and and a friend from, uh, undergrad at IU. And, uh, but we had no, no clue what we were going to do. We just thought, I'm going to write some cool software and people will just, you know, flock to us. Uh, so I uh, ended up writing some, I had done some work on what was a fairly primitive state of AI back in uh, the day in uh, grad school. So I decided I'm going to build an expert system inference engine, uh, a tool that uh, other developers could use to add some degree of AI to their products. And uh, so did it, and uh, we were selling this thing for $100 a copy or, <laughs> or something, and it became clear, this is never going to work financially. We blew through all the money we had, both Joe and I had put money, our own uh, money into the, the venture, and we just basically ran, <laughs> close to ran it into the ground. Uh, but we uh, uh, developed a great relationship with a local venture capital firm uh, it's called CID Venture uh, Partners. And uh, the, the partner was a guy named uh, Bob Compton, who was uh, close to my age, 
but had an MBA from Harvard and he's just a very smart business guy. And uh, so he rolled up his sleeves and uh, worked with us and, you know, helped me understand the difference between a tool and an application which was really a critical part of my uh, business mm-hmm. education and uh, how to create a story around an application that meets a specific need that people have budget for, all that sort of stuff. And when we did that, uh, we, we recast this tool as an, a help desk automation application. And we started selling it you know, for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the business, it it was just remarkable uh, how it uh, took off once we made that switch, you know, to selling people something that's what they wanted, you know, imagine that. And uh, ultimately it became the first software company in Indiana to uh, go public. And as you said, uh, you know, was uh, acquired a couple of years later by IBM, but I left right actually before the IPO, I really had a hankering to go off and do it again, to take what yeah. I learned. And so I started uh, interactive intelligence. What were the terms like when you raised uh, from CID, you know, $3 million? What was that? What was it like raising venture uh, then compared to to today? I'm sure it's drastically different. Uh, What was that like? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it was was, uh, relatively straightforward. Although the the funny thing was back in the, uh, at that time, CID would send out two venture partners to evaluate any opportunity. And their rule was, they would only invest if both partners uh, agreed. So they sent uh, two guys to uh, evaluate us. And uh, the first guy said, no way. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. These guys have no clue. They've spent all this money. They don't have a clear plan. Uh, And the second guy, Bob, uh, said, uh, you know, these are a couple smart guys. They're really passionate. I can help. You know, we can make this, uh, this work. And uh, so the board ultimately, Bob's a very persuasive guy, the uh, the board ultimately uh, ended up deciding to invest, which infuriated the first guy. He quit. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He quit, uh, left, uh, uh, and ultimately, yeah, they put in somewhere, I, I, I think it was a couple of tranches, but ultimately a, a two, two, two to three million bucks. Um, and um uh, it became their best investment uh, ever. You know, they had, I, I don't know, a, you know, twenty-fold sure. uh, return on uh, on their uh, investment, something crazy. So, and, 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 then, and then, yeah, and then you started interactive intelligence, which was that kind of based on some of the help desk stuff you were learning uh, when you were doing software artistry. Yeah, a little bit. A help desk is an inwardly focused application, right? It's for yeah. the employees of the company. And it became clear to me in that process that the real uh, value was in customer service. So similar technologies, but facing customers rather than employees. And so, yeah, I decided uh, that do it over again, but a similar domain, a similar problem domain, really fun area that involves lots of different technologies, uh, including uh, AI, knowledge-based uh, uh, technologies. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, it, as a, opposed to software artistry, where we kind of wandered in the wilderness for a long time, figuring out you know, what we were going to do um, at Interactive, uh, we had a product within a couple of years. Um, we, uh, our first year of, of uh, 
commercial sales, we sold uh, 1.5 million bucks. The next year, it was 9 million bucks. The next year, it was 18 million bucks. Uh, and uh, that was that 18 million buck year was uh, 1999, uh, uh, kind of at the height of the dot com craziness. So if you were a tech company with 18 million bucks in revenue, it didn't matter how much you were losing. You could go public. And, uh, and so we we did, and the the uh, even though we were losing money hand over fist, uh, the valuation within less than a year was three quarters of a billion dollars uh, back then. Wow! Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's, I, not, I it's no different than today, right? You uh, you can raise, um, uh, a, you know, if you're doing eighteen million dollars of. of Revenue today, you could probably raise at a multi-billion-dollar valuation on the private yeah. market today. It's it's a little, but I mean that's crazy. So, um, how did that work? Did like bankers approach you for the IPO? They're like, "Hey, tech is hot. Like, we can take you public. Uh, oh, and yeah. get this done." Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We we just had a parade of bankers coming through, you know, auditioning to uh, to take us public. Um, uh, yeah, it was just that sort of time when there were tech IPOs happening every week. And so, yeah, this was the bankers were just flipping these like uh, like pancakes. And uh, for, for me, I had funded uh, that company. I not needed venture capital and uh, I had enough money from software artistry that I put about 10 million bucks of my own money into uh, interactive intelligence, which got it through to the IPO. And so it left me in a good position that even post IPO, I think I owned three quarters of the company or something. Okay. So you own quite a bit. Not a lot's being floated. And I think I saw a stock jumps up to 50 something dollars and then down to yeah. two after the crash. Yeah. Did you have yeah. to lay people off or what was it like at that time? Oh, God. That, yeah. 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 Yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was a great learning experience because yeah, we went public, we were riding high, the stock price is soaring, um, so uh, we we're hiring like crazy, and uh, then uh, the the dot com crash happened, yeah. and uh, we had to lay off a lot of people. Now at least we were able to survive back mm-hmm. then. There were a lot of excesses, companies dying all over the the place. So we just tightened our belts and we were uh, able to get through and eventually kind of grow uh, our uh, revenues to uh, meet that expense line. Uh, So it uh, it ended up uh, uh, working out uh, okay for us, but it was, oh, a good five years of just a hard slog. Because like you said, the the stock price, I think we went public at 13. Within less than a year, we were at 54. Uh, Within less than two years after that, we were under two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just uh, observing that it was a wild ride. It's it's crazy, right? So you said five years, kind of get back. And yeah. then, were you affected at all by the, you know, the 08 crash? Like you lived through like two uh, as a public company. Did, that, <laughs> yes. did that affect you a whole lot? Or was that a little bit different? The business was in better kind of footing at that point. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. Uh, it it's, it certainly was an off year for us, but no, it wasn't nearly okay. as bad um, as uh, the dot dot com crash. And plus, I had just become much better about avoiding excessive growth, getting too far ahead. Although it's it's tough. Interactive ultimately grew to about twenty two hundred people, and you just have a CEO. You have everybody coming to you and saying. I need more people. I need, mm-hmm. we need more people here. We need more. And you just, 
you become the bad guy. You just say no all the time. Uh, because if you don't, it's unbelievable how quickly things can spin out of control. Everybody can come up with some reasonable justification for hiring, you know, more people. Sure. And they all, you know, look at you like Scrooge if you say no. We're sorry, but we're not going to grow our, our tech support team this year or, you know, we're not going to invest more in, in uh, education or whatever it is. You just... Uh, all these are kind of valid uh, areas, but you you just have to say no because things can the expense line can just balloon out of control in the blink of an eye. You know, a lot of our a lot of our listeners and in, in audience at Visible are, are founders and CEOs, probably earlier on in their journey. Uh, how how do you say no but keep the 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 leadership and the team engaged and, and, and happy and, and wanting to go out and you know, run through a brick wall, even though you're saying, hey, no, we can't do that. How, how did you relay that message? Well, I, I think part of it is I say no. By constraining your growth a little bit, it does put you in a position to treat the people you have better. And that's mm -hmm. what I came to realize. That it's far more important for me to make sure uh, I'm going to be asking a lot of these people. So I need to compensate these people well, motivate them. <laughs> I, I want to put as much of my resource. And so I would explain to them, too, that, look, the more we spend on hiring other people, the less we can afford to give you annual increases and extra benefits and everything. So just getting people to understand we're all in this together. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there isn't some magical money pot that things come from, even as a yeah. public company. Yeah. And, and you do have to educate people because they, you know, a lot of people are, are naive and they think, well, the stock market, the stock price is going high. So there must be just money flooding into the company. They don't understand that that increase in stock price, you know, isn't providing short-term fuel for the company. It, it increases the equity of the company. It gives you options down the, the road, but that's not the same as revenue, right? Yep. And, and people, don't, people don't understand that. So it's a, a constant process of, uh, of education and uh, help, helping people appreciate that we're, we're all in this together and uh, we, everybody needs to be approaching this as if this were their own money. Uh, you know, and it's not just funny money that uh, we can print, you know, in, in order to cover all these new positions. Last, last one um, thing I found pretty interesting about interactive intelligence when, when doing some research was around uh, your bet on internationalization early yeah. in the company. Yeah. Uh, I think there was one interesting thing I read about. Um, supporting double byte characters, which is a character system for more you know Asian based uh, type customers. What was the insight there of like, hey, we should we should internationalize? You know, a lot of the advice you hear today is like, hey, own your own market and then go expand. Why did yeah. you guys decide to do internationalization out of the gate? Well, it, it really stemmed from experience at software artistry, where you know, we put no thought into internationalization until we needed to. Mm -hmm. And at that point we had, I don't know, you know, a million, several million lines of code and the internationalization process was extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, in fact, I think we were largely limited to English speaking countries. Um, you know, it was unthinkable to uh, the, the work necessary for double byte character sets and, and so it was really as a result of that at um, uh, 
um, and interactive, Lifomic and all subsequent companies, uh, I've just made it clear from the beginning for the developers, this has to be internationalized. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we are going to, at some point, we are, we are uh, going to go uh, international. And so from the first line of code, I want, I, I, I want everybody to take that into account. And so it started off really at the uh, engineering level, you know, making sure that we were set up to expand uh, internationally. And then we were fairly aggressive uh, at the business level, too. I think we, we started selling in the U.S. in uh, 97, and we, were, uh, we had our European operation going by 98 and our Asia-Pacific operation going by 99. We were... Uh, uh, very aggressive in that uh, international expansion. And it, it was painful. It was, certainly wasn't smooth, uh, but ultimately it, it uh, uh, proved uh, effective for us and allowed us to grow more rapidly. Yeah. Um, okay, so at this point, you've chalked at least three wins, right? Uh, then you started Life Omic. Uh -huh. And this is kind of like back to the beginning, right? This is kind of in, in your original path of what you were doing. What? Why start you know, another company. Not, why not at this point go and do something else or, or get out of being in that, that founder role? What, what was it that you're like, I need to go start this business? Uh, yeah, it's not, not an easy uh, answer to that question. <laughs> I, I guess by way of an answer, um, during the years, during kind of the, the slog years of uh, interactive intelligence, when I went home, I, I noticed something about myself. It was kind of interesting that uh, I had no desire to pull out a business magazine or books about customer service or, you know, when I, when I came home and I had uh, kind of free time to just think about something else, I would grab a biochemistry book, a molecular biology book. Mm -hmm. And I, after a, a while, just observing myself, I thought, what is going on here? You know, why, why is this? And I, I realized that there was somewhere inside me, there was this feeling that I hadn't uh, accomplished what I had originally set out to do. And so I actually, I, I stunned my kids. This was probably only about six or seven years ago. I, I, I said, you am going back to school. Uh, I uh, ended up getting a master's degree in biotechnology from Johns Hopkins. Uh, I think I started about 2011 or 2012 and got the master's in 2016, uh, something like 2016, yeah. right around the, the time that we uh, consummated the sale to uh, Genesis. But I had a blast. I you know went back through biochemistry, molecular biology, cell biology, and then had a chance to take courses on uh, stem cells and immunotherapy and the biology of cancer. And just, I was just a, happier than I'd been in years. And more and more, first, this was just kind of an intellectual uh, pursuit. Uh, but more and more, I kept thinking, I'm going to do something in healthcare. And I was thinking something philanthropic. But then when Genesis came along and bought the company, I decided, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do something here. And uh, so uh, so the, the sale to Genesis happened in uh, 2016. And um, they thought that I was going to retire <laughs> as, as well. So there was no non-compete. There was no non-solicitation, no nothing. I literally not was it competitive Genesis with with what you wanted to do no 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 not, yeah. not really but uh, there were 
some uh, ruffled feathers when I think about eight of the senior developers uh, decided mm. to uh, leave with me mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. when I uh, uh, formed Lifoaming. And uh, uh, it was uh, pretty funny because those guys, uh, I had no idea what I was going to do. They had even less idea what I was going to do. But several of them came to me and said, we're going with you. We know you're going to, we know you're going to not just going to ride off in the sunset. We know you're going to do something else and we want to be part of it. And you've got no choice. You're, you're, we're, we're coming with you. <laughs> so, so I was able to start with a really good uh, nucleus of a team. Isn't this kind of falling into the trap though? Yeah, start, you're like, you're starting something without like a job to be done or you're absolutely, like, hey, I think absolutely. <laughs> That's a a great observation, and I've made it myself uh, that I'm repeating an error that I committed earlier in my career, and now I have no excuse uh, (laughs) because I, I know better. And, yeah. uh, but I've been honest with everybody, my developers, uh, everybody, uh, telling them this is your, if you come join this company, understand that it's being formed probably on the worst possible basis, <laughs> you know, which is some money, but no clear idea of what it's going to do. And I, I even jokingly said to a couple, I will respect you less if you come and join uh, me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I'm really going to question your judgment uh, if, if you come, if you leave a perfectly good opportunity and come up with me, you know, to do, do something like this. Uh, but, you know, we kind of collectively decided we're, we're just going to uh, jump in. And it's just been a hell of a lot of uh, fun. Uh, you know, we've, we, we've been, uh, you know, it took us a little uh, a little while to find our footing, but we developed a really good collaboration with uh, the, my alma mater, the IU School of Medicine and IU Health, and uh, have been able to uh, do some really rewarding work uh, with those institutions. Yeah, so I was looking at this kind of rundown, and maybe maybe better serve for you, but just this quick rundown. So you've you've started the company. You mentioned you're doing work uh, on the treatment of cancer and other diseases with IU Health. Yeah. Uh, There's a cloud security service that was spun off the Bain recently uh, yeah. called Jupiter One that raised nineteen million dollars. Um, you have the Life Apps, which is what the Visible team are doing, like some fasting challenges right now. That's been <laughs> yeah. downloaded three million times. Um, you have Lifeology, the groundbreaking education platform, SkillSpring, and uh, it sounds like this year is something around precision wellness. So, like, how do you find the time? Like, those are a lot of different things over the last, I think, four years. How, yeah. how did that all happen? Like, what was the start of the company? You're like, you didn't have an idea. What was like, what was the first thing you guys did? And yeah. then, how did you end up to where you are now? Um, you know, it sounds like kind of one of the big pinnacle things is with the IU School of Health. So, like, how 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 we connect the dots there? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been an interesting uh, journey, and amazingly. Uh, it, it's all kind of coming together pretty nicely. Um, I, so the, the starting point really was building a cloud platform uh, for the School of Medicine. Uh, they, uh, uh, IU had launched an initiative called the Precision Health Initiative, or the PHI, um, a couple of years before. So that would have been like 2014. And they had really ambitious uh, 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 desires uh, plans. I mean, uh, they had come out and said that they were going to cure uh, some forms of cancer. A uh, big one is a disease called multiple myeloma, which is kind of a leukemia that hits older people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it's it's very uncharacteristic for an academic medical institution to 
say something that brave, you know, that's, yeah, that's, well, yeah. that's, that's out there to say, we're going to cure uh, this form of cancer. Uh, but then, you know, a lot of good people working, they developed some kind of concept papers about what they needed to do. And the linchpin of all of it was a data platform. Uh, they called it a data commons where they could aggregate, you know, healthcare is saddled by just countless forms of data. You know, mm -hmm. you've got electronic medical record systems that are essentially balls of spaghetti, you know, the, the, the data too. Uh, and then, you know, you've got these emerging big data sets. Um, we can see uh, all the genes that you were born with, uh, you know, sequence your entire uh, genome. Uh, and that's about 100 gigs worth of uh, information, right? So that's you know, all the, the DNA that you got from uh, mom and dad. Now, God forbid, if you develop cancer, that genome has changed. So in, in, those, uh, in that, that cancer, uh, there have been mutations that have caused some group of cells to start to grow out of control, right? So now, in, not too long ago, uh, sadly, even today, uh, a lot of oncologists won't uh, won't sequence your cancer. They'll give you old school chemotherapy that essentially kills whatever moves, right? Mm -hmm. And it it will hit the cancer, but it will hit other parts of other cells as well, other tissues, and you know, obviously, cause you to get pretty sick. Now, though, increasingly. Uh, the technology has come along, the prices have come down so that we can sequence your tumor. And then we can compare, we can say, well, what's changed? Uh, you know, uh, a person was born with this germline sequence, uh, which is the, the, the term, you know, what they got from when they were a baby from mom and dad. Yeah. But now we've got a clone of cells that, that where uh, that sequence has changed. What are the specific mutations that are driving this cancer? And increasingly, we can go in in a very precise way, hence the term precision medicine, uh, and uh, uh, affect that particular change in a way that harms the cancer cells, but not the normal cells. And that's the big revolution that's taking place in uh, cancer treatment. So, so what we did was, uh, you know, when we sat down with them and they described what they needed, we said, well, Crap, we know how to do that. Sure. Yeah, we know how to build a, a you know, massive cloud platform. That's what we did the last uh, five years or so at uh, Interactive Intelligence. Uh, so we uh, went off and uh, built that, and that's been used by uh, uh, cancer teams. First of all, research teams at the School of Medicine, and then uh, recently uh, they're expanding it uh, off into regular clinical practice at uh, IU Health. Okay. I know zero about health. So I'm going to take a step back because uh, you're, 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 you're explaining it in a way that makes sense, which is great. Um, so you mentioned DNA sequencing or, or your, your kind of genome. For, to perform that analysis, it's like, hey, we're only going to go attack these cells. Do you yep. need to have, like, your? do I need to at some point get this download of the 100 gigs of my own genome before yep. and after, right? So how, how are we going to solve that uh, where we can get everyone's, like, sequencing before they are sick? Well, I, you know, it's it's uh, certainly possible uh, today. I've, I've had my my genome uh, sequence. You know, more and more uh, people have. Um, 
the uh, the cost has uh, dropped precipitously. Uh, Paul Allen uh, paid a hundred million bucks in two thousand one to have his uh, genome sequenced. That was the cost. Okay. One hundred million bucks. Okay. Uh, yeah. Today, yeah. uh, that cost for me or you would be less than a thousand bucks. Wow. Yep. Uh, so is it like uh, is it Moore's law in the like it's in terms more. of it's exceeded uh, Moore's Law, uh, that, that price. Now, it's leveled out a little bit the last few years. Uh, uh, there are a lot of predictions that that cost will drop below 100 bucks in the next, next five years or so. Holy so at that cow. point, you know, as a society, we certainly ought to be having every baby sequenced. Uh-huh. Uh, because for, for one thing, uh, the, the, there are a fair number of inherited uh, disorders, uh, immunodeficiencies, and others that are very, very hard to diagnose without this information, but are, are trivial. You can see them, you know, once you have uh, the whole genome sequence. Um, so what, what ought to happen is we all ought to have some health locker, you know, in the sky someplace uh, we, when we're born, uh, or you know, whatever point along the way, we ought to have a whole genome sequence done once and uh, stored there. And then uh, years later, decades later, uh, if we develop cancer, uh, then we ought to have that that tumor sequenced. And then it's really easy in software, you know, to go through uh, that hundred gigs worth of information and say, ah, this gene. Uh, has been uh, mutated and now is driving this cancer or, you know, commonly this set of three or four uh, genes. Um, and with that information, then we have access to very targeted therapies. Blows my mind. You know, when I think about file size, I'm like, oh, I downloaded an MP3 from Napster back in the day. It was three megabytes. We're talking 100 <laughs> yeah. gigabytes of, you know, that's, that's wild. So what came, I, I remember when uh, you gave a presentation uh, at the CEO summit we were at uh, about fasting. Uh, and I think everyone was writing, like everyone was writing everything down. Um, what came first? Was it like, hey, I'm going to do the, because the life app for, for fasting, right? Um, was that kind of the, the start into, into this or was it the cloud platform or what was the, the, the start? Well, you know, we, we built a cloud platform, but I, I had become a big fan of uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, that had, uh, had happened uh, during my studies at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I came across a, a research paper by a guy named uh, Walter Longo, who's a, a professor at uh, uh, USC. Uh, and uh, I, he, I, uh, this paper blew my mind because uh, I, I had heard of the, uh, I, I, I was fairly familiar with some of the science behind the benefits of caloric restriction, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, they started finding, scientists started observing, and then there have been studies even previous to that, uh, showing that when you restricted the caloric intake of just about any animal, uh, if you kind of kept it at the, without moving it into uh, malnutrition, if you just kind of kept it on the skinny side of whatever that, the, you know, the normal range was for that animal, they lived longer. And they developed fewer diseases as they aged. And it was, it was remarkable. Uh, so in, in the 90s, uh, that knowledge started to become uh, more and more formalized. Uh, scientists 
started in yeast and worked on up to nematodes and uh, mice. Uh, and then uh, there was a real famous uh, article, a New York Times uh, headline uh, or front page article around 2010 or so. And it showed a picture of two rhesus monkeys. They were both, I believe, 28 years old. Mm-hmm. One had been fed ad libitum, mean, meaning just whatever the hell he wanted to, to eat, kind of a normal uh, diet. Uh, one had been maintained on a restricted diet, the same food, but about 30% less uh, than, than the other monkey. The difference was unbelievable. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, it was apparent which one was uh, 28 is approximately 75 years old or something in, you know, monkey uh, years. Yeah. Um, but, but the difference was striking. And uh, uh, the, you know, the ad libitum monkey had a curved spine, you know, gray the hair, you know, was visibly weak, patchy fur. Uh, the, uh, the calorically restricted monkey looked like a young monkey, you know, it was, it was just unbelievable. And so out of all this, there uh, actually arose a society of people, uh, a caloric restriction society. So there are people who decided, you know, I'm going to, the rest of my life, I'm going to restrict my calories. I'm going to live on essentially 1,200 calories a day. And I remember seeing uh, uh, some documentary uh, years ago about these people, and they just looked like hell. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're, they're just skinny, you know, they're arguing over carrot sticks. And, and I thought, God, you know, if that's what it takes to, you know, live an extra 10 or 20 years, count me out. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have beer and pizza. Uh, you know, I, I'm just, I, I just can't do that, I, you know, real, realistically. But I, I came across a, a paper by Longo in which he had calorically restricted mice intermittently, you know, just like a day and then letting them eat and, you know, maybe every other day or they're yeah. he played with different patterns. And what he found staggeringly were the results were better than the permanent caloric restriction. And I just about fell off my chair, you know, reading this paper and I it just light bulbs went off and I thought, holy shit, I can do that. Yeah. You know, you know, 24 hours, you know, that's, that's skipping lunch and uh, breakfast and lunch. You know, I don't have a, a whole lot of willpower, but I think I could do that, you know, once a week or, you know, something. So um, it just led me down a, a rabbit hole of, I, I probably read a hundred research papers all around this area. And um, I began to see that this isn't just another diet craze that, you know, broccoli is good for you or eggs are bad or, you know, eat more apples and, all, yeah. you know. Uh, there, uh, there are important things with with our diet, but this was something down at the molecular level that we could trace the actual signaling pathway to understand what was going on. And so, you know, kind of the geeky side of me just exploded. And I thought, I see what's going on here. I understand why this works. You know, that this is really activating an ancient survival mechanism that's programmed into our cells. Uh, that, you know, if you're a bacterium sp- swimming in the ocean and there's no food uh, available uh, in the immediate vicinity, uh, you need to go into some sort of shutdown mode 
um, uh, in order to survive, you know, until you come across something to, to eat. And that, that sort of survival mode is, has been passed down through the eons right to ourselves. And uh, so that we can activate that. And when we do it ourselves, you know, essentially, you know, our, our cells are dumb. They don't know that, you know, uh, we we missed lunch and, you know, we're, we're going to eat again in, in just a few hours. Uh, and to our, our cells, they think, holy crap, you know, this guy is wandering out in the savanna, you know, in Africa. We may not eat again for, for weeks. So we better go into a recycle mode. Uh, those old proteins that we left, you know, sitting over in the corner uh, over there, uh, there, you know, we were going to deal with some uh, rainy day. We need to break those down and reuse those for fuel. Uh, so there's this recycling uh, that gets uh, initiated uh, after, you know, roughly uh, 16 hours ish uh, in a, a fast that is just tremendously beneficial to, uh, to our health. And it's, it's a really a shame in our modern society, you know, as, as kind of hunter gatherers, we were designed to be able to operate without food for long periods of time. You know, we had to, uh, we didn't have bags of Doritos and refrigerators and, and stuff, you know, we, we were wandering, you know, spreading around the planet. And one of our strengths as a species was this ability to be able to go without food and to kind of go into a recycling uh, mode. And we actually turned it into a positive. Uh, but unfortunately, in our modern society, we've turned it off. Uh, it's shocking how many people never go more than four hours during <laughs> a day with that, honest to God, waking up yeah. in the middle of the night <laughs> to eat. Uh, and people who've come to believe that if I go more than eight hours without food, I'm going to die. <laughs> I've had people tell me that. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's crazy. So, so anyways, I, I, you know, I came to understand the science behind this, the implications in terms of, of health. Uh, I, be, I started to uh, practice it um, and, you know, was really pleased with uh, the results uh, I started sharing it with my kids, you know, my, my family. And I found that we were texting each other saying, Hey, I've, I've gone 18 hours, you know, today without fasting. And I feel great. You know, I'm, I'm on kind of a mental buzz uh, right now. And so, um, uh, early on at, at Lifomic, I, uh, I told our team, I want to do a mobile app for, uh, intermittent fasting, just kind of for fun. And, you know, they rolled their eyes a little bit and thought, okay, this is, this has nothing to do with anything else that right. we're doing. But my excuse was, we'll build this app and it will use our cloud platform uh, as its data repository. And maybe we'll get five or 10,000 people on this free app and we'll get people who are using it and are doing some load testing for us. You know, they yeah. use our, our back end for account management, for all the data and everything. And, the you know, the development team kind of said, well, that sounds a little bit sketchy, but OK. Sure. You know, if you want us to build this, we'll build the damn thing and, uh, you know, see, see what happens. And, you know, the, the punchline is that we ended up uh, we're at about three million uh, downloads. So it's been a great uh, load test for the, the rest of our platform.
That there were that was awesome. I have a ton of questions. I want to get back to the the science first. Um, sure. One thing I found interesting you said was um, your basically your body or your cells going to survival mode. Yeah. Um, is it bad to like have your cells like every day or whatever frequency thinking like you're you're in like fight or flight mode or that's like well, that does it have clearly there's like no long term implications there or, or it's okay that your cells think you're in survival mode like every day. Uh, yeah, it's a really astute question. It's a it's a good one because I it's a form of stress. You know, starvation is you know as you might imagine it's it's a form of, of uh, stress. Um, and uh, what what we're coming to appreciate is that our bodies handle different forms of uh, of stress completely differently. Intermittent stresses, acute short term stresses are unbelievably good uh, for our bodies in just about any kind you can imagine. Uh, uh, there's a whole science, uh, the, the kind of technical term is hormesis. Uh, hormesis is this notion that a small stressor, when you encounter a small stressor, this could even be a poison, mm -hmm. uh, a small dose of something that's bad, your body overreacts to. Your body goes, oh, crap. You know, mm -hmm. things may get a lot worse from here. You know, this guy just ingested a little bit of strychnine, you know, some some tiny, tiny amount. We better produce, uh, uh, you know, as much kind of anti-toxin uh, as, uh, as we possibly can because things could get much worse from here. So in the short term, that process is really beneficial to our health. Uh, Long-term chronic stress is bad. You know, there comes a point where uh, we don't, uh, you know, these short-term adaptations don't, uh, don't work anymore and our bodies just kind of burn out. So, so the short-term, I mean, so the, the, the real answer is that as long as these stresses are in, intermittent and the body's given a chance to recover, uh, it's extremely beneficial. And uh, I've just uh, completed a book uh, that I'm, I'm writing about this that uh, uh, we're uh, working with uh, publishers on. But I, I'm just so fascinated by this notion of hormesis and kind of an ancient program that's lurking there within ourselves. And it explains all uh, different sorts of phenomena that have been puzzling up to now. You know, one is exercise. And why mm -hmm. is exercise good? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. exercising your car isn't good, you know, uh, past the point, you know, maybe just, you know, getting the, the lubricant flowing a, a little bit. But our, our bodies are, are so unique in that short term stresses of just about any type evoke a, this protective response. And whether it's exercise, um, uh, there, uh, I don't, I don't want to sound too crazy here, but there are people who actually will go to the bottom of uh, old uh, mine shafts to get low doses of radon and uh, other uh, radiation. And uh, we're finding that a low dose of even DNA damaging radiation in, invokes this repair response that the net of it ends up uh, you know, it's the old expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so it can be hypothermia, uh, exposure to cold, uh, does, has the same positive effect, hyperthermia, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, men in uh, uh, Finland who do regular saunas live longer, have less disease, uh, exercise. Uh, some of the polyphenols in plants, plant chemicals, the especially the things that make them brightly colored, you know, the red in strawberry and the, the uh, blacks in, in blackberries, blue in uh, blueberries. These are actually... The, the plants make them to protect themselves from insects. So they're, they're poisons to the insects. Oh, to us, they are small toxins. And they provoke this same sort of response. And so that's why you, de- you want to eat a wide range of you know, plants of different sorts of colors. You know, I do it along with my beer and pizza, but, you know, I, I make sure that uh, I'm, I'm consuming those as well. So I, I could go on all, all day. Yeah. But it's uh, I think it's really it's, it's fascinating. fascinating. So let's, you know, weight loss is clearly uh, a, something that can happen from, from intermittent fasting. What are the other benefits um, outside of just weight loss? Like, you know, why are you... Uh, intermittent fasting, or why should I think about it outside of weight loss? Yeah, well, I, you know, to me, kind of the central uh, uh, idea goes to um, I, the, the fact that as we age, um, we uh, uh, around our bodies, we seem to have an increasing number of uh, misfolded proteins that start to clump together. Uh, so not to get too deep in the weeds, but proteins are the workhorses of our cells. You know, this the collagen of our skins, the hemoglobin that carries blood. You know, everything that happens in cells requires protein. So we're manufacturing them all the time. Uh, but uh, proteins have to fold into complex shapes in order to do their jobs. And um, sometimes, especially as we get older, uh, they will spontaneously unfold. And when they do that, they get sticky. They expose water-hating regions that can aggregate together. And when that happens, bad things start to uh, result. And it's especially true in our brains. Uh, We're finding that uh, uh, diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are directly due to the aggregation of these misfolded proteins. But uh, we're finding it throughout our bodies, every cell, every tissue. You look, you know, you compare an 80-year-old and a 50-year-old, and you'll see a stunning difference in the degree of uh, aggregation. Uh, You get to the point in diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, you can see these, you know, right Mm -hmm. under a microscope. You can see these clumps of uh, proteins. Um, and so you know, for me personally, the, one of the big benefits of intermittent fasting is triggering this recycling of uh, old and damaged misfolded proteins. It's a process called autophagy that's starting to get a lot of play uh, in the press. Um, and it is this recycling program where the cell, uh, when it's nutritionally stressed, the cell starts looking around and going, oh, my God, you know, there's no sugar floating by, by in the bloodstream. Uh, I need to start. I, I remember I took some proteins away and, you know, under the, the I, I swept them under the rug uh, last week. I'm going to go get those and break those down and have fresh amino acids, you know, uh, that I, I can use. And so it, it triggers this, you know, protective uh, response 
of breaking down old proteins. And so we, we think that that's why these lifestyle interventions reduce rates of everything. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, heart disease, uh, kidney failure, certainly Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, uh, you know, other neurodegenerative uh, diseases. Uh, so anyways, for, for me, that's the, the, okay. the biggest thing. All right. And so I, um, if you're cool with this, we have some questions. I've sure. actually sourced these um, from founders. So I think if they could look at the founder uh mentality i think founders are always willing to try something especially if it's um maybe something that's like you know we're always told you should have breakfast uh so i always think founders are always willing to try something new or, or different and and clearly um i think fasting is i mean it's been downloaded three million times right just just europe i know there's other apps out there so yeah. uh, clearly clearly it is it is here uh so just some questions we had around like best practices um let's talk about maybe first the time um you should fast. So like you mentioned 16 ish hours, like how do I know what the right time is for me? And like, especially when I, when I think about intermittent fasting, I want the benefits you mentioned, right? Like less likely to get serious disease later on, uh, repairing cells, all of that. Like, how do I know that's actually working to my favor? Like what if I'm accidentally doing a 15 hour fast and I should be doing 17 hours? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think the, uh, what, what we're finding is that um, after you eat a meal uh, it takes you roughly, uh, for roughly eight hours, your body is running off what you ate, right? So after, after dinner, you have dinner at, at 6 p.m., uh, about 2 a.m. in the morning, your body has uh, pretty much uh, uh, used all of the calories from, uh, from that meal. Uh, and so during that time, your body is using whatever's there, which for most of us is plenty carbohydrates, you know, plenty of glucose and, and the other uh, uh, constituents. Once that runs out, your, your, body, your body has two levels of stored uh, energy, two, two, in effect, batteries, right? Uh, a smaller one uh, and more easily accessed is called glycogen. And glycogen is just strings of glucose molecules. Uh, and uh, the uh, main place where it's stored is in your liver. And so for about four hours, uh, you're able to run off the, the glycogen that's stored uh, in your liver. And that's what your body uses first. So 2 a.m., you know, you're hopefully sound asleep, but, you know, your your belly is starting to get a little bit hungry. Your blood sugar is starting to drop a little bit. You know, that beer and pizza that you had at, at 6 is starting to, uh, to, to go. Uh, and so your liver steps up and starts supporting your blood sugar by breaking down that glycogen and pumping it out into the blood. And so, you know, until say roughly 6 a.m., uh, let's say you're an early bird and 6 a.m. You, you wake up. Now you've used up your, your meal uh, reserve. You've used up the glycogen stored in, in your liver. And so now your body has to turn to its next level of energy storage, which is your fat. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, we've got you know, a month, yeah. multiple months worth of, it's, it's incredible, the number of calories uh, stored in, in fat. And, and so now your body says, well, crap, you know, uh, I need to start breaking down that fat. It's going to take me a little bit more uh, energy, uh, but um, uh, I need to uh, 
cells need to switch from primarily burning sugar to now starting to burn fat. Uh, that fat burning is really a big signal to your body that, aha, well, if we're, if we're now switching over to fat power, then I need to start to think ahead, you know, because that's a signal that things may be getting lean out there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, again, we're wandering over a glacier and there's, there's no food uh, uh, around. And so your your body is is fine with doing that. Uh, most of your your muscle, especially, is great at uh, burning fat. Uh, your your heart uh, burns uh, fat, and those are a couple of the biggest, you know, most uh, energy intensive uh, tissues. Uh, but unfortunately, your brain isn't as good. The the fatty acids uh, from fat uh, breakdown don't pass through the blood brain barrier as well. And so what your liver does, it's just like, uh, I guess, like a mother bird that chops up the worms and feeds them to, uh-huh. uh, to the babies. Uh, the liver absorbs some of those fatty acids and says, I'm going to just snip them into uh, two or three carbon uh, units that will slip more easily uh, through the blood brain barrier. So the brain can use these. They're called ketones. Uh, and they're just just that uh, yep. two or three carbon uh, units that uh, the brain can burn actually very efficiently. Um, and so um, uh, uh, other tissues around the body, like your muscle, they stop burning sugar in order to spare it for the brain. So the brain takes the available glucose and these ketones um, and is able to uh, operate uh, very uh, efficiently. So that that's kind of the time course of, of things and, uh, you know, people worry about losing uh, muscle mass uh, during fasting. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't happen unless you're fasting a hell of a long time. You know, you'd have to at least several days uh, in order to, because uh, your your body, you that's what your fat is for. Right. You know, your body's not that dumb. It's not going to start breaking down your bicep that you might need to, you know, fight off an animal when you're, you know, you know when you've got a nice spare tire around your you know, <laughs> And, you know, your body's not dumb. And, and so it starts uh, uh, breaking that down. And so what, what we're finding is that forcing ourselves, uh, and there is, you know, this is biology. So this isn't engineering as we, we know it in the software industry. So it's, uh, there are constant trade-offs. It's impossible to say what is the best uh, sure. thing. You, you really have to find what works for you. Uh, but, uh, you know, for, for many of us, uh, who have kind of settled into a fasting, uh, lifestyle, I, I think by, by far the biggest thing is break the habit of eating after dinner. You know, yeah. uh, if you, if you can do one thing, just stop eating after dinner and make sure that you're going to bed on, you know, that it's been three or four hours, you know, before you've, uh, since you've eaten, uh, uh, when, when you go to bed and that way, you know, and again, if you don't eat during the night, then at a minimum, you're probably going to have a 12 hour fast. So you will have forced your body to use the glycogen and maybe get into some light, uh, ketosis, Okay. So that's the first step. And that's what I tell people, you know, we have lots of people who use our app and they want to do a a 10 day fast right off the bat. (laughs) I go, 
don't do that. <laughs> you know, if you make it, you're never going to do it again. You're going to have such an awful experience. You know, don't don't be a kind of a, the equivalent of a weekend warrior. You know, I would far prefer that you never do, you know, a long fast, but you do a 12 hour fast most days of the week. And then what you find once you've done that, then stepping it up and saying, you know, maybe ordinarily I would have breakfast at six. I, you know, I'm, uh, on the way to work, I would drive through and get an Egg McMuffin or something. Yeah. But take that Egg McMuffin, put it in your drawer and have it at, at, at eight. You know, now that's a 14 hour fast. Yep. No, no big deal. You know, you're not pressing the bounds of, of uh, biology or, or anything. And then, you know, after a few weeks, have that Egg McMuffin at 10. You know, now that's a 16 hour fast. And by 16 hours, now you've had four hours uh, of your glycogen being exhausted and being in full-blown fat burning mode. So if you give yourself 16 hours, your body is starting to say, okay, wow, we, we need to really start uh, recycling now. We need to start you know, breaking down that old uh, gunky stuff. So for me personally, what I try to do is most days, I, so today I haven't eaten yet. You know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll probably have an 18 hour fast or so uh, today. So I'll have breakfast uh, at uh, around noon, uh, somewhere between 10 and, and noon, depending upon how I, I feel. And then, um, you know, I, once a week or every other week, I'll push that a little bit more. Maybe I'll skip breakfast and lunch you know, mm -hmm. and make it a 24 hour fast. And that's really 24 hour, people freak out when you say I'm going to fast for 24 hours. And it's like, dude, I'm just not eating breakfast and lunch. I just, it's, right. it's, it's not, not a, a big deal. You know, I'm not going to become anorexic or, or <laughs> because I skipped a, a couple of meals so that, that's kind of my personal uh, pattern. And then kind of the next level, uh, uh, especially as you get a little bit older, you know, maybe uh, past 50, uh, Walter Longo, uh, actually the guy I mentioned at the uh, outset, uh -huh. recommends a, a multi-day fast. Um, okay. My, my and next question was like length. Like what about, you know, you hear people doing like a five-day fast. Like, is that yeah. a good thing? It, it depends, you know, like, like most things yeah. uh, for, uh, I, I, I've got, uh, eight kids, uh, and my, all my kids are very fit. One of my daughters, uh, who's about 30, uh, mid thirties, uh, tried to do a multi-day fast and started to get headaches and, you know, just feeling lousy after about 48 hours. And I said, don't do that. Yeah. No, don't, don't, it's, you know, if you're feeling bad, you know, uh, that your body is telling you something, but for me, you know, as a 60, uh, almost 65 year old, uh, man, I tried to do a five day fast twice a year. Okay. Uh, and it's a slightly modified fast. I don't go completely without calories. For one thing, uh, I, if you remember nothing else, uh, uh listeners, Never do a dry fast. There are people out there who are advocating it. It's stupid. You, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's incomprehensibly stupid. Yeah. So drink, drink, and drink anything you like that doesn't have calories. Um, so coffee, tea. I'm not, you know, diet sodas have some downsides, but if that's all that can get you through, have a freaking diet soda. 
you know. Um, but when I do my five day fast, I'll give myself about 200 calories a day. So I'll give myself a, a small green salad with some olive oil, um, you know, no, no carbs essentially. So it's not kicking me out of uh, ketosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll take in a couple hundred calories a day and do that for five days. It's tough, but it's not the, you know, it's not the hardest thing in, in the world. And what Longo found is that, especially for older people like me, uh, a five, after oh, roughly three to four days, you're starting to tear down your old white cells, your old uh, immune cells and trigger the formation of new ones. And it really is a rebalancing of your immune system that is very uh, beneficial as uh, again, as I say, especially for older people. Yeah. Uh, I want to make sure respect for your time. Um, I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, let's keep going then. Uh, we'll try to wrap this up in the next 20 minutes. Uh, all right, so we had people writing in about like, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, coffee, tea, things that don't have any calories. Uh, so I assume Bulletproof coffee then is a no-no considering that's like a highly caloric coffee. Is that correct? Like, I think there's like 500 calories in a Bulletproof coffee in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and again here, it, it, the, you know, the answer is kind of, it depends. Uh, uh, First of all, I'll I, I just point out that, uh, you know, some people just cannot drink coffee without some sort of creamer uh, mm-hmm. in it. And I, I remember talking to a friend a couple of years ago about fasting. He said, I could never do that. I have to have cream in my coffee. And my response was, put cream in your freaking coffee, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> If, if the difference is no fasting or, you know, accepting a, a little, a little cream, cheating just a little bit, sure. then, you know, cheat. And, and well, you know, I think that's especially true when you're starting out. And so bulletproof coffee or the equivalent is just putting uh, uh, MCT oil, you know, medium yep. chain triglycerides or coconut oil. Put a little bit in your coffee. If that uh, helps you over, you know, a, a tough period uh, early on, by all means, do it. Because the the real goal is to avoid carbohydrates. Okay. Uh, the, the carbohydrates are the big signal to the body that ah, oh, times are good. You know, there's sugar around. You yeah. know, uh, so um, you know, let's let's not worry about recycling and everything anymore. So if you can. If you can at least avoid the the carbs, uh, and if you're going to cheat, do it with fat. Do it with, yeah. uh, you know, medium chain triglycerides, you know, uh, something like that. And I, I think that's the approach that the uh, Bulletproof Coffee takes. Yeah, okay. Good to know. Uh, what about, like, so you mentioned, like, you know, some days you're doing, a, you know, an 18-hour fast, other days might be 12. Is yeah. there... Uh, so I could get the benefits of a fast anytime. It's not something I need to do six weeks, you know, in a row to get the benefits. I can kind of pick and choose when I do my my intermittent fasting. Uh, yeah, I, I had somebody, uh, a relative, asked me early on. You know, uh, he, he tried to fast and and then broke down uh, one day and said, you know, so should I just give up? You know, I I, I blew it. You know, I yeah. I, I didn't fast uh, that day. I said, no, think of it like eating broccoli. Right. Okay. You, know, you know that eating broccoli is good for you. And there, I could go into the biochemistry <laughs> of, of that. Uh, but if I don't eat broccoli uh, today, you know, it doesn't mean that I should just give up on broccoli. 
right? I'll have yeah. it tomorrow, uh, you know, or, or, you know, some, some equivalent. And so uh, fasting is the same thing. I mean, it's the same thing with exercise, with all of, all of these things. You know, if I have a bad day and I don't exercise, I'm not going to say, well, you know, I blew it, you know, forget, uh, forget exercise. So it's, it's kind of, I think it's uh, the advice is very similar to exercise in that it's kind of the, the more, the better up to a point. Okay. Exercise is wonderful, but if you're, you know, turning your knees into dust or, you know, you're just breaking down your body, then you've taken a good thing too far. And so fasting is a, a similar thing. And, you know, trying to do it most days of the week, I, I highly recommend if you're a normal weight person and you're doing five day fast, uh, you know, twice a month, I'd say back off, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're turning a good thing into a potential negative. We had, we had one of our founders write in, uh, it kind of context was intermittent fasting. Uh, is it okay to do cardio on you're on a fast? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So I, 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 I absolutely exercise during a fast. I, I, uh, last time I did a five day fast, the last day of it, I was out rock climbing. Um, and, uh, but it sure makes you want to eat when, uh, <laughs> yeah. when it's time. But, but the great thing about exercise is that especially during the exercise period, you're really not hungry, uh, at all, even after a multi-day fast. Um, and so, yeah, again, within reason, you don't sure. go out and run a marathon, right. you know, when you're on the fifth day of a, of a, of a fast, that's just not smart. Uh, but to do, you know, some, uh, do your cardio, go play tennis, basketball, you know, lift weights. Uh, absolutely. But most of us kind of, um, actually enjoy exercising in the fasted state. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been doing fast intermittent fasting for the, you know, the past 15 or so plus years. I, I caddied when I was in middle school and in high school, and I didn't want to be relying on breakfast because you had to wake up at the crack of dawn, right? Yeah. Um, so I've been practicing this for a while. But when I start tracking my time, uh, you know, for a fast, I always find, and you, you hear about this like mental state or uh-huh. buzz you can kind of get in. But yeah. I always find that like at like 11 a.m., I'm always like, I'm so hungry, I can't even focus on work. Uh-huh. What are like, what should I, is there any way I can trick myself or things I should think about to like, change like so i can stay in that kind of like mental flow and not be thinking about food i you know there there are uh, coffee is a great one for me and unfortunately i I like just buy coffee so uh you know i can uh during those bad hunger periods i I, the other thing that uh and again this may be a little bit geeky but the other thing that helps me uh that uh uh the hormone that causes the severe hunger pangs is called ghrelin. Okay. Uh, it's a peptide produced by your stomach, but it also um, stimulates formation of neuro, new uh, neurons in your brain. Uh, okay. It stimulates uh, something called BDNF, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic uh, factor. And it, it makes sense. Uh, evolutionarily, uh, when animals are hungry, they need to be their smartest, right? Mm. Uh, Evolution is 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 uh, intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. So when when we're starving, our brains are at their most active. 
uh, because they need to be. That's when we need to be on our game. We need to be thinking, well, how are we going to get food? How are we going to trap that uh, antelope? Um, and so for me, psychologically, that helps. Oh, you know, my, I've got, you know, those uh, rumblings in my tummy and that means that my brain is uh, actually developing right now. I like, I kind of like uh, okay. those, uh, those hunger pangs. So you know, there's that psychology of changing your, uh, you know, your relationship, how you interpret uh, those uh, hunger pangs. And that's, that's actually a good thing that uh, is going on. But then, you know, there, uh, I, I do recommend the uh, coconut oil, something like that, or, you know, if you don't drink, if you don't want coffee, have a teaspoon of olive oil. Olive oil is uh, incredible mm-hmm. stuff for many reasons. But uh, yeah, you'll find take a teaspoon of olive oil, and uh, in five minutes, uh, those hunger pangs will be gone. You'll still be in ketosis. Um, you know, no harm, no foul. If that helps you get through a tough period, and you know maybe go an hour or two longer, then absolutely do it. All right, so your team, your pro olive oil, team olive oil, talking about <laughs> yes. diet. Um, all right, what, what, you know, there's been a ton of, I mean, it seems like every day there's like different diets, you know, interesting data on plant-based diets uh, coming out, especially with performance and athletes and yeah. um, a lot of talk about the Mediterranean diet. So like, what are your thoughts on diet? Um, you know, you mentioned beer and pizza, so I'm assuming you still enjoy those things, but like, oh, how yeah. do you think about your diet and, and, and especially with like fasting and and just some best practices there. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, first of all, uh, that's a, another essential uh, element of yeah. um, health. And you know, for for us, we we built a fasting app first, and then we followed on with a more general app that we call Life Extend. That's another uh, free app that is at crazy uh, download uh, numbers. But it uh, guides people uh, along what we refer to as the the five pillars of health. Uh, And one is plant-based nutrition, getting as many plants in your mouth every day uh, as you can, uh, along with exercise, stress reduction of some form, you know, mindfulness, breathing, uh, sleep, and then uh, intermittent fasting. In fact, uh, for, for your listeners, we've created a corporate wellness uh, solution uh, that uh, we, we just launched and it has been uh, taking off like uh, crazy. It's been fun to see. Uh, but where we combine that cloud platform that we built for uh, cancer mm-hmm. uh, researchers and the mobile apps, and we use that as a corporate wellness uh, offering, uh, and it's uh, free for uh, companies of uh, fewer than 100 employees. Oh, awesome. Yeah, so it's at precisionwellness.io precision uh, if you're uh, interested. But it, but anyway, so it, it you know leverages these concepts that, yeah, fasting is great. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of fasting, but it's not the only thing. There are other things we, we need to do to optimize our health. In, in terms of diet, the big one for me, I've, I've kind of given away. It's not so much, uh, I, I really try to focus away from telling people what not to eat sure. and telling them what they should get into their bodies. Yep. And that, that's how uh, I approach it. Uh, and there have been a number of studies, uh, prestigious, uh, the Lancet had a, a study on this not too long ago. And what we're finding is that people who consume at least five servings of fruits and vegetables, you know, healthy plants every day are, are the ones who fare the best. 
And it's not so much about whether they eat meat or don't eat meat or whether they, you know, other things are, it's, it's not so much about what they don't eat. It's about what they do eat. And so for me, I have the things I love. I, I come from Appalachia. We love biscuits and sausage gravy. Uh, I try not to do that too, too, too much, but I, sure. you know, I, I do. Everything in moderation, I, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I like a good steak. I, you know, I love beer, beer and, and pizza, but I am dogmatic about getting five servings of fruits and vegetables into my body every day. So before I have that big, beautiful pizza, I'm going to have a, a nice salad. And uh, I, in our formulation of kind of healthy plants, uh, we include uh, nuts and, and uh, healthy oils, especially okay. uh, olive oil. Uh, so uh, kind of my, my big thing, I'll make a smoothie uh, uh, quite often during the day where I'll put a banana, strawberries, blackberries, a bunch of... Uh, uh, it's surprising how good baby uh, spinach is with, mm-hmm. in a smoothie. I never, never knew. I'll even put in uh, flaxseed is another one of uh, my uh, favorites. I'll put in a couple of scoops of flaxseed. And then if I'm really being good, I'll pour a bowl of a little bowl of olive oil and get a little bread. And so I'll eat my olive oil and bread, drink my smoothie. And that comes up to about seven servings of healthy uh, plants. Right there in one. What do you what do you consider a serving? I it, it varies uh, based upon the uh, the plant, and in our app, we we try to give some guidance. Okay, about okay. There we, we go. To, There's a plug yeah. to download the app and and yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, check absolutely. it out. It'll it'll give you uh, good guidance uh, that way. But like you know, a tablespoon of olive oil is a serving. Uh, I think a couple tablespoons of ground flaxseed is a serving, uh, you know, a cup of, of strawberries is a, a serving. But for me, that's the, the easiest thing I've found, just to make a, a smoothie. It tastes good. You know, put a bunch of uh, healthy stuff in it. And God, even if I just eat like crap the rest of the day, you know, I've got my seven, you know, in that case, you know, seven servings or so of, uh, of healthy stuff. And now I'll have my beer, my pizza, Indian food, whatever, you know, yeah. all the other stuff that I, I want, even a Chick-fil-A on, on, on occasion. Uh, but I'm going to get those uh, those servings of in uh, uh, a variety of brightly colored fruits, vegetables, you know, healthy oils. Um, but, yeah, that's the idea. What's your what's your take on glucose monitoring? That's been a huge thing I've seen happen online. Where uh, there's companies now where you can be monitoring your glucose. Like, where is that going? Is that a thing? Should I care about it? Uh, what what can I do with that information? Yeah, it, I I think it is a very interesting thing. I've got a, a friend, a physician friend, who's a huge proponent of uh, CGMs. You know, the continuous uh, glucose monitors. I have not tried it myself. I've wanted to. Uh, I've used the old finger prick method, you know, where I'll, uh-huh. I've just got a little glucometer and, you know, we use the test strips and and just, you know, check myself periodically. Just uh, and I'll do that for both uh, blood sugar and ketones. Um, and, and that's uh, pretty uh, useful information. But I, I think the CGM is, you know, the, my, my attitude is the more data, the better. Sure. Uh, so yeah, to be able to monitor yourself, uh, my my friend said that he was really surprised. Some of the foods that uh, mm-hmm. uh, had been touted as uh, low glycemic index, 
yeah, you know, as being, you know, slow absorption um, for him caused big spikes in his blood sugar. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, you know, there, there is some individual variability there uh, and the CGM can help uncover that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see what people are posting online. Like some some people eat cheese and nothing happens to them, and some people do yeah. and it spikes, and it's it's pretty wild to see uh, it, it is. that data online. Uh, last question: uh, We have a ton of female founders on Visible, which is awesome, and they kind of wrote in and asking, you know, does fasting? Should I think about it? Is it different for for men versus women, or is it um, kind of the benefits are the same, and the way you should practice it is is the same regardless of of gender? Yeah, I I don't think there's any uh, any huge uh, difference. Um, as it turns out, uh, the vast preponderance uh, of our uh, fasting users are women. Okay. Uh, so we we just have a tremendous number of of uh, female uh, users who uh, get uh, enjoy uh, good results from from the app. But uh, but no, that that's. Uh, at the core, that survival program that I mentioned, that's there in all our cells. It's yeah. independent of, uh, of gender. You know, certainly there are hormonal influences. There are differences. But, uh, you know, at, at the core, it's it's really the same process taking place yeah. for both genders. Okay. Uh, last two questions. These are kind of switching gears back into the lifeomic world. Sure. Um, one is, so you mentioned you have these like different life apps. You have uh, the corporate wellness, like, what is like the mandate internally? Are you guys just kind of creating skunkworks projects like a studio and going and doing these different things? Or do you have a kind of a master strategy that everything touches the, the clock platform? Or how do you think about the strategy of your of your business moving forward? Well, I, I maybe to trivialize it just a little bit, sure. what we're about is improving health. Now we 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 want to make a difference in uh, you know help uh, bend the the curve you know in terms of uh, overall health, especially here in the U.S. Our healthcare system is so god awful mm-hmm. uh, that you know we we just wanted to jump in and, and make a difference. Um, and and so for for us, the way it's evolved, we've got the cloud platform uh, and then the, the mobile apps, and we're combining those in different ways. So okay. in one context, that is a researcher at Eli Lilly uh, who's testing a new drug for cancer patients. They want to use the mobile app to interface directly with the patient. They use the cloud platform for uh, aggregating the data, and they're you know using it to publish uh, research studies. But that same combination can be used by a company to provide uh, wellness to its uh, employees. It's exactly the same software, the same cloud platform. Uh, it might be a little bit overkill, it's, you know, yeah. uh, uh, but that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's sure. got the scalability, security, everything for cancer uh, that, that uh, we offer for uh, uh, corporate wellness. And uh, then, you know, kind of the same thing on the, uh, the, the mobile side. So uh, really it's just uh, repurposing the same technologies for different markets and and just trying and seeing what you know what what works you know yeah. what what ends up resonating uh, with people you know and, and at least so far we've been fortunate that uh, we seem to be hitting on different sorts of areas that need the same underlying technology. Sure. Okay. Uh, I lied. There's two questions. Now that was the first question. I have two more. I lied. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, you're also self-funding this company. Is that correct? Yes. Is there a is there a day where you're like I'm no longer putting any more capital in this business? 
or because I know you've been approached by investors and you said, hey, we don't need any money. I'm doing this myself. Maybe there's a, a big strategic acquisition at some point, but like, is there a point in which you're like, how do you think about managing? I guess, you know, there's like the rule of 40, <clears throat> excuse me, the rule of 40 in venture, which is like, I want a 40%, um, you know, growth rate plus, you know, burn. Um, do you have like a rule for yourself of like what's healthy burn for what you're doing at Lifeomic or how do you think about capitalizing and financing uh, the business yourself? You know, I, I really just kind of take it a year at a time. Uh, yeah. So far, I've put about 40 million bucks of uh, my own uh, uh, money uh, into Lifeomic. Uh, I'll put another 20 million or so uh, this year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I had a you know great exit from uh, Interactive sure. and I've got the cash to be able to do this. I told my kids, uh, <laughs> I created trust for you guys, uh, but I'm going to take the rest of this and I'm probably going to blow it. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a labor of love for me. Yeah. This is not about uh, making money. You know, if I end up recouping this investment, great. You know, who doesn't like to get his, his, his money back, but I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not buying a yacht. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't know what else I would do. I'm maybe I'm, I'm just a boring person. But, well, you, yeah, uh, clearly, clearly not. Um, I was reading that. This is my last question. Uh, Outside Magazine said you guys were one of the best places to work. Why uh, is that? Oh, well, I, I think that kind of evolved, uh, you know, early on. Well, we decided early on that we were going to be a distributed company. We've got okay. uh, headquarters yep. in Indianapolis. Uh, we've got a development office in uh, Research Triangle Park in uh, North Carolina. Uh, and then I live out here in uh, Park City, Utah, in the Salt Lake uh, area. So we set up uh, an office uh, close to the University of uh, Utah uh, out here. And uh, it's it's great to have that sort of distributed operation, you know, three great markets we can draw uh, talent from. Uh, but I, I also felt it was important to get people together uh, periodically. Mm -hmm. And so the very first year, um, we, uh, I think we had maybe 15 or so of us. We went out, uh, we picked a bad time of year. I waited till, uh, October to go into the Uinta mountains, uh, not far away, uh, for a camping trip. Well, that'll awesome. be fun, yeah. you know, a kind of a bonding uh, thing. We'll go camping overnight. We'll do a little rock climbing, hiking and stuff. It got down to nine degrees. <laughs> it snowed a foot. Uh, but everybody had such a great time. Uh, you know, it took a couple of days to get over the frostbite. But uh, Hey, stressors are a good thing, though, right? That's what you said. So It, it was a great thing. So we've repeated that, uh, you know, uh, now with numbers closer to 100. This last year, we actually spent four nights uh, out in the wilderness uh, camping uh, together. And it's just, it's wonderful. You know, it's, just it's the great. bonding uh, that you get, you know, getting people out away from everything, doing crazy things, you know, t together, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just indescribable. So it's just kind of organically become a, you know, a mainstay of our culture. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Visible was also started distributed and we did um, our first offsite back in, oh man, I can't remember the year, maybe 2014 or 15. Uh, and, you know, we kind of more or less, we've, you know, bootstrapped this in as well. I didn't have, you know, uh, the capital you've had access to. So our first offsite, um, and we had an international team. So we did it in Copenhagen. Oh, um, wow. And it was like at a hostel. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and it was like 
November. So it was like, that was the cheapest time to go fly somewhere to get the team together. Um, yeah. Every year it's been in the fall and it's just, it's just been great to get the team together. And, and we've done everything from like uh, one of our designers, she signed us up for a longboarding class. So we all learned how to skateboard in Barcelona together um, oh, cool. last year. And it's been wow. fun to see it evolve. And uh, we've always kind of found ourselves going in the fall. And so I, t- I promised the team, unfortunately, I promised them last year, I was like, we're going to do something hot where we can wear shorts and enjoy <laughs> some good weather. Clearly that didn't happen because of COVID. So we're fingers crossed at some point this year, we might be able to get a big team together for uh for, uh, for our offsite, because it's I have the same feeling you do. It's just great to get everyone together. Um, it, and it, it really, it really is. You know, it's it's one thing to be snippy in email with somebody you you know you've never met, but sure. you know when you shared a meal out in the wilderness at ten thousand feet, or you know you belayed somebody, you know had their life in your hands, or yeah. they their, your life in their hands, you know uh, rock climbing, then you relate to them differently. You know you don't say something shitty in an uh, email <laughs> yeah. to somebody. You know it's so yeah it's it's a it's a great thing. I'm I'm a huge believer. Well, uh, Don, I can't thank you enough for for coming on, sharing your story, uh, your successes, and clearly your passion for for all things health. So, thanks so much for coming on the Founders Forward, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right. See ya. Okay. Bye.